passes quantitative reasoning, if you can add and subtract, you'll be okay. Uh, it's a breeze, Jordan. So um, I'm excited at this point. I'm like, wow, I never liked math, but this is gonna be a breeze. So I, I step into class on the first day and the professor, when he starts teaching, he totally dismantles all the lies that, that I was told uh, because, because I didn't understand anything he, he was teaching and he taught extremely fast. So he was at like this constant sprint with just covering so much material in a 50 minute class. And I, I, I just needed a lot of breaks because I'm like, I'm not getting this at all. Uh, to make matters worse, it was a Monday, Wednesday, Friday class, so I had the class three days a week for 16 weeks. Uh, so it seemed as though uh, this, this perpetual torture would never end, like I would never get out of quantitative reasoning. I, I could not stand the class. And as far as grading is concerned, uh, we had weekly quizzes, and then we had a midterm and a final. And the weekly quizzes were, were 10 questions. Um, but the problem with a 10 question quiz is that the margin of error is so small, it's frightening. So you're like, oh man, if I get four wrong, that's a 60 automatically, which is terrible for my grade. And then when, when we get to the, the midterm and the final, I'm, if I fail this class, I'm gonna have to take it all over again in 16 weeks doubles to 32, I think. It, it, it like, I, I couldn't, correct me if I'm wrong afterward, uh, but, it was, it, was, it was pretty bad, uh, but I can say, by the grace of God, I passed quantitative reasoning with a C minus. Glory to God, all right? Hope is a real thing. Uh, but, but I say that because, have you guys ever underestimated something before? Like, have you ever thought that, that you had a handle on something only to find out uh, you were in way over your head? Maybe for you, it was when you first got your driver's test back in the day, uh, where you're like, I got this, and then you failed. Maybe it was uh, cooking a recipe that you thought would be so easy, and then the, the actual meal came out terribly. Uh, maybe it was raising kids. Like, when, when you guys first find out you're pregnant, you're like, this is going to be easy. Then you figured out, like, this is much harder than, than uh, I, I thought it would be. I, I think we underestimate things all the time. And I think uh, one thing in our culture that we have this tendency to underestimate is, is what it means to actually follow Jesus. Uh, I was looking up statistics, and 65% of Americans would consider themselves uh, Christ followers. I'm like, wow, that's pretty high. Um, but, but in those statistics, I think a lot of people kind of underestimate what it actually means to follow him, right? Because a lot of people would say, man, I'm a Christian, uh, I read my Bible. Hey, I'm a Christian, I have faith. Hey, I'm a Christian because, you know, I made a commitment 40 years ago. Uh, hey, I'm a Christian for all of these different reasons. And as I'm, you know, studying and I'm thinking through, I'm like, is that the qualification for, for what makes our faith genuine? Or is, is there something more? Because we get to a passage in Matthew chapter 7, and Jesus is talking about, uh, you know, in the final days, this group of people is going to come up to him. They're going to be like, Lord, Lord, uh, receive us into heaven. And Jesus is going to say these like scary words and he's going to say, you know, depart from me. I never knew you. And they'll say things like, but God, we, we prayed the sinner's prayer. God, we are involved in so much ministry, like eight days a week. Uh, uh, God, uh, uh, we, we, we even casted out demons. Don't know if you guys have ever been called to be a part of a demon casting out ministry, but that's like elite of the elite stuff. And, and these guys are like, God, we, we did all of these different things. We worked tirelessly for you. And Jesus replies like, but I never knew you. 
You never have had a relationship with me. Uh, so the question is, how do we know if our uh, experience with God is actually genuine? And, and that's the, the question that we're going to answer today. And uh, we're going to be in the book of 1 John little book near the end of the Bible, and uh, this book is written to a group of believers in Ephesus. Uh, the author of this book is the same guy uh, that wrote the, the Gospel of John, right? So he's old now, and he's writing to uh, a group of Christians, and he's, he's writing to them and giving them a series of different tests on how to know if their faith is actually genuine. Uh, some false teachers have got into the church, and they've been trying to sway their opinions of what is actually truth, and John's like, okay, let me, let me you know, cut through all of the facade and, and give you three different distinct tests that, that you can use to know if, if you're actually about this thing, and, and one of the tests that, that John specifically uses is this test of love. Very interesting. So would you turn with me to 1 John chapter 4, uh, verses 7 through 11. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 through 11. It will also be on the screen if you want to follow along there. And this is what it says. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. And this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, uh, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So it's super interesting because in this passage, John is basically saying that the measure of love displayed in your life actually bears witness to how genuine your Christian experience is. And, and so what I want to do today is, is talk about three different components of love. And I'm going to talk about the source of love, the example of love, and then the practice of love. And, and the goal for all of us, including myself today, is to just take an honest look at ourselves and say, man, how well of a grasp do I have on this concept of love? Like, how am I, how am I actually doing in it? Uh, we all also can grow, so even if you think you're like a nine on the love scale, like, you can still grow. Uh, but but how, how well am I doing in this area of love, and in what area specifically am I not the most loving, and could I grow? And that is the source of love found in verse seven and eight, and uh, this is a super interesting passage, right? Because it cuts through so many things that, that we just believe to be normal about the world, normal about God, normal about maybe even ourselves. And I think a lot of us grow up and we assume we have a pretty good handle on love, right? We, we like to let people go in front of us at the grocery store. Uh, we, we try to say hi to our neighbors. Uh, a lot of you are parents and grandparents, so I'm sure you've made exponential sacrifices for your kids and grandkids. And, and so while we know we're not perfect, people, most of us would assume like, but I, I know what it means to love someone, Jordan. I, like, I think I got that down. But if we're honest, we also know some people are super difficult to love. We like to call them the unlovable, right? Uh, and, and we all have those aunts or those cousins or those uncles or whatever, those siblings. We, we all have those people in our life that just like get under our skin and make it super difficult to love, right? Maybe it, for you it's a coworker a boss, uh, maybe it's, it's someone you, know, you, you work with or uh, you're just around all the time. 
And I think one of the easiest ways to, to see the anger and the frustration is when you look at politics, right? Like, if your blood boils at the thought of someone in office or running for office, like, that's a clear example of, of just like the anger that other people can bring out of us. And, and I think an important question to ask is, uh, do you ever find yourself, maybe even hate, uh, due to how messed up everyone else out in the world is, right? Like, man, this feeling is so justified because that person just is, uh, like, do, do you ever find yourself uh, telling yourself that? Well, John replies to all of that and says, dear friends, let us love one another. Like, this is a command. It's not this optional thing, but he doesn't stop by telling them to love one another. He continues and gives them two reasons on why this, this, uh, uh, this group of believers should love one another. The first reason John gives for loving one another is because love comes from God. And this is super important because if we don't understand uh, that love comes from God, we're going to have a skewed understanding of what love is. So just as light radiates from the sun, love is the, the main thing that comes out of God's being. And this concept of love, it's not just this sentimental, emotional, group hug type of love like you see on Oprah or something. Uh, it's much more than that. Uh, the word here is a common word. It's used in the Bible called agape. Uh, it's very popular in our culture today, but this is what it means. It means a love that is unconditional, a love that seeks the highest good for uh, the one who is loved, and it's a total, a love of total commitment. So why, why is it important that this, because when, when you're trying to learn how to do something well, you, you look to the, the person who has it down perfectly, right? You, you look to the expert of, of whatever you're trying to learn, and, and right now, God is literally the expert. He's the source. He, he defines love itself, and, and when we read in the Bible, uh, and, and we read how God talks about love and how God loves, uh, it never says God loves because or God loves if. Uh, because God doesn't love us because we're beautiful. He doesn't love us because, you know, we're perfect people or have something to offer him. Uh, God's love, quite frankly, doesn't have anything to do with us. It's all motivated on who he is, not who we are or what we have performed. And I think this idea of love from God is, is kind of radical. Uh, because if you take an honest look at the people you love in your life, other than your kids, uh, like a spouse or your friend or, you know, cousin, or whoever you're really close to, why do you love that person? Probably because you respect them, you admire them, um, you, you, you just, maybe they have made crazy sacrifices for you, uh, maybe you just, you just enjoy being around them, maybe they share your passions, if it's romantically, uh, I'm sure you, you, it started physically, you, you saw the person from across the room and you're like, wow, that's, she's beautiful, he's handsome, uh, and then you had this chemistry and this connection, but my point is we generally love people who, who have something to offer us, right? And the thing about God is that we didn't have any of those things, right? We weren't beautiful, we, we didn't have uh, all of these awesome things to bring to the table, uh, but God still loved us. And so the second reason John gives for uh, loving one another is because whoever loves knows God and has been born of God. Whoever loves knows God and has been born of God. I, I said it earlier, but the amount of love displayed in our lives actually bears witness to our walk with the Lord. John's not saying that whoever loves in this world must be a Christian, but he's talking about a relationship, right? Like if we are sons and daughters born of the king, that, that we're going to share in his DNA. Uh, me and Sam sometimes like to joke 
uh, what our kids are going to come out looking like, right? And I'm like, I just hope my hazelnut skin complexion passes down to them, and I'm praying that my bunions don't. Other than that, my kids can, you know, come out any type of way, healthy, happy, whatever, like, I'm okay. Those, those are just like my two requests. Uh, but anyone who has kids know that uh, your kids share much more than just a, a physical resemblance of you. They, they actually share your DNA, right? Like the, your lifeblood is inside of those kids. They, they resemble you. Part of you is inside of them. And, and that's the whole picture that if we're born of God, that his DNA is actually residing in us. And that DNA includes love. It's a relationship. And so uh, if, if everyone loves who is born of God because we're God's children, the opposite also must be true because verse 8 goes on to say, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. I'm learning um, that it's easy to be close to religion and far from Jesus. Uh, I'm learning that, you know, we can, we can use church attendance and going on mission trips and giving and, and doing all of the right things as, as something to check off of a box rather than doing it out of a heart that's solely motivated by love. And so, you know, I, I want to ask you a question, like, how has your joy in serving been lately? Do you still do it with joy? Has it become routine? Has it become stale? Uh, because if it is, uh, uh, you really just have to take an honest break and a step back because God is so much more interested in who we're becoming than how we perform. He doesn't care if you're at a church eight days a week. Like, he wants your heart to be passionate about him. And, and we can't use different things to, to make that passion come alive. It has to start by saying, man, my heart is in love with God. Everything I do flows out of that. And if we're not there, man, again, spend some time working on your heart and your relationship with God before you just get busy in ministry because you'll burn out. You won't last. And you'll find a, a bitter taste toward anything related to church if you don't actually have a heart motivated by love. Because I, I read this verse a couple weeks ago, and it really convicted me because I was prepping for, for youth group. And I, I'm, I'm, what was I doing? I was sermon prepping. I'm getting the, the room yet, uh, ready upstairs. I'm getting our game together, and a student texted me at the last ride. He needed a ride. I'm like, oh, don't worry, man, I got you. And I, I noticed that I started to, like, get agitated. And, like, I had this, like, feelings uh, dwelling up inside of me of just, like, annoyance and, like, anger and frustration. I'm like, whoa, wh where's that coming from? And so I read this verse. I spent some time with God, and I was like, God, is this actually me being motivated by love right now, or, or is it something else? Do I love the students I'm about to serve tonight? Do I love uh, uh, this guy I'm about to pick up um, wherever he needs a ride? And the answer was no. And I realized that the reason I was getting so frustrated and annoyed is because I had an idea of how the night was going to go. I wanted to be perfect. I, I wanted my message to be polished. I wanted the game to be the best game all year. And, and since I had such an idea of how the night was going to go when it didn't happen, I got upset. And I'm not saying it's bad to have a plan. It's not bad to want the night to go a certain way. But if, if you know, if I was, since I was so locked on how I wanted the night to go, I, I, that resulted in me not loving the student well. 
me not loving uh, uh, the teens well. And, and it, it was all inside, right? It's all this like motivation, this attitude of the heart. Uh, and, and I realized even as I was sermon prepping, I was like so focused on wanting to sound clear. I wanted my delivery to be strong. I, I wanted this to be a polished message. And, and, and it's so easy to forget that I'm actually talking to real people. Right, like as, as I'm prepping for youth, it's easy for me to get that real students are about to come into the room and that they're not just practice, they're not just my sounding board, they're not just pieces in a game to make me feel more successful about myself. These are real people. And if my heart isn't motivated by love, I'll manipulate the things around me and the things I'm doing to make me feel better about myself. The Lord convicted me. And so, if we fail to love, the verse says we don't know God because God is love. Love isn't something God does. It's who he is. Everything he does flows out of love. And man, that's the desire he has for our lives. So the first thing is that John shows us that God is the source of love. The second thing John shows us is the example of love. The example of love. You know, a popular question that uh, people sometimes ask is, how do I know God is love? Right, because that word love has been so misconstrued and beaten down and abused in our culture. Right, uh, people say that they still let us down, even when it's not malicious. People fall in love sometimes, then they end up getting divorced. Uh, uh, people uh, say they love you to get certain things they want from you, and so uh, when people say that word love, a lot of times we don't know if we can trust it because we we just throw it around. I love this, I love that, and so. You know, as, as people say, I love you, I think we start to become hardened to that uh, uh, fact and, and actually question, like, can you actually back that up? Like, when you say that word love, can, can you actually back that up? Because I don't think you can. And so we just grow cold and we don't actually believe in the meaning of the word love and in the original sense of it. And so I think that also affects our relationship with God because we're like, God, can, can I actually believe that this God is love? And I would say that the verse tells us, because in verse 9 it says this, this is how God showed his love among us. How do we know? This is how we know. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. Can we just like wrap our minds around that? That this God of the universe started the reconciliation process. He started to initiate peace with us between a broken people. I, I said it earlier, but we generally love people who are lovable, who have something we admire, who have something we respect. God didn't look at us with any of that because, you know, in Ephesians 2, 1, it says, as for you, it means all of us, we were dead in our transgressions and sins. So that means pre-Jesus, nothing lovely about our lives, nothing that, you know, that the natural person would see and say, man, that's, that's, that's something worth, worth loving compared to this holy God. So apart from Jesus, there was nothing lovely about us, but this God still initiated. He still sent. He still said, man, I'm going to pursue these people even though they have nothing to offer me. I mean, imagine if, if you were in an accident on the southern state, you're driving, do-do-do-do-do, and you're just kind of like zoned out, and then like, bam, you get in a fender bender. No one's hurt, uh, but still, you're totally at fault, you caused the accident. And then, let's say the person gets out of the car, and rather than yelling and being like, oh, I can't believe you did this, they're, they're, they're pursuing peace. They're like, are you okay? 
oh, oh my gosh, I can't believe this happened to your car. Like, are, are you okay? I just want to make sure everything is, is good. Man, let me call the ambulance. I just want to make sure you're checked out. Hey, any damages, it's on me. Don't worry about it. I'm just glad you're okay. That would be, that would, that would be insane. I mean, it would be an awesome day for you. Uh, but realistically, like, that, that's insane. But, but what's, what's the moral of that little story? It's that God, the one who was offended, the one that was hurt, the one that was wronged against, pursued peace with the wrongdoers. He pursued peace with the offender, right? It, 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 it is this crazy idea. I mean, you think about it. People wake up every day living for themselves rather than living for God, uh, blind to truth, you know, ignorant of, of how life actually wa- works, you know, walking around in darkness, but God still sent That's why Jesus came into this world, so that we would find life through him. I remember uh, when I was first saved, uh, I'll never forget it. My youth pastor was explaining how so many people try to find life through all of these different things, through uh, 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 money, through wealth, through cars, through success, through happiness, through family, through all of these different things. But he's like, man, life is found through Jesus. Life is found through Jesus. It's this relationship with him. Like, we have value. We have purpose. We have meaning. We, we have destiny. But until we align our lives with his, we're going to be detached from all of that. We're going to be detached from it because we were never created to live for us. We are created to live for God. So until our lives align with his, we're going to be out of alignment. And, and I, I think that honestly is probably one of the biggest reasons we fail to love people because you know, if you place yourself frustration for hurt and constant letdown, when you, when you place yourself as being the sole, like the, the most important person in your world, everyone is always going to be against you. You're always going to be offended. Things are never going to go your way. But I'm learning that when I start to wake up, and I'm actually practicing this, you know, that's Sam, I'm, I'm trying to get better. But when I wake up and say, man, no one owes me anything. I'm not created to live for me. I'm created to live for God and to make him known to the world around me and everything I say or do. When I start to do that, it becomes easier to love people because, man, my reputation isn't at stake or or me having my needs uh, met aren't at stake and all of those things. And and, uh, don't make this legalistic. I'm just saying we make life about us, and I think that's what happens or that's what forces us to not love. All right? And, And... I'm le- yeah, you know, and I'm, I'm also learning that in Christ, all of my needs are actually met. And, and by that, I think sometimes, like, we say that, and we're like, oh, that sounds cheesy. I used to have, like, rent due and all of these different things. Uh, but I think what happens is we start to place unrealistic expectations on people, unrealistic expectations on life, and we look toward all of these different things to give us what only Christ has ever promised to give us. You know, when, when Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at the well, he says, man, drink one, uh, like one, one sip from this well and you'll never thirst again. Like he promises to offer or to satisfy our deepest longings, our, our deepest desires in a way that nothing else will. An idol, an idol is something that we look to to give us what only God can give us. We all have idols in our lives, whether it's family, TV, pleasure, fun, money, success, whatever. But we look to all of these different things to to give us hope, to give us comfort, to give us peace, to give us uh, 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 value and worth. And and Christ says, like, anything other than me is going to leave you thirsty. 
Anything other than me is going to leave you uh, uh, longing and panting for more because, man, it can fill you for a moment, but it's temporary. You have to keep coming back, keep coming back. So Christ says, come to me. I can satisfy you. So God's love isn't just proven because he sent Jesus. It's also proven by what it cost him to send Jesus. Look at verse 10. It says this. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Like God paid such a great cost in order for us to know him, in order for us to be restored to him, in order for us to be reconciled to him. It says that Jesus came into the world as an atoning sacrifice. What does that mean? It means that God sent his son Jesus into the world to die. He sent Jesus primarily into the world to die for the human race. And, and people wonder, like, why did Jesus have to die? Like, he was a great guy, awesome teacher, but like, what's the purpose of his death? And Jesus died, sir. If God is holy, which he is, and, and just, then he can't have anything to do with sin, right? All over the Old Testament, they always had to offer these animal sacrifices to appease the wrath and the justice of their perfect and holy God. And so quite literally, they would take animals and they would slay the animal. Blood would go everywhere. It was pretty nasty. Uh, But that would temporarily appease this wrath of God so that he could uh, see their their sacrifice and that would would temporarily uh, satisfy his wrath against their sin. Something had to stand in the place of them not not dying. Uh, But when Jesus comes along, he does something so much better than this temporary sacrifice. He's the perfect sacrifice because he is 100% God, 100% man. He never sinned without blemish, without fail. I mean, he came into this world to be our representative, to live the life that we were meant to live but failed to. And and he, he was all about love. Like, his life perfectly embodied love. He walked around healing people, forgiving them of their sins, never living for himself, always living for the good of others. And the incredible thing is that the religious leaders hated him for it. They hated this man that never did anything wrong. And and I think the reality is darkness never wants anything to do with light. And so they had him arrested, well, accused, arrested, beat. They hung him on a cross, and then uh, when he didn't do anything wrong, God poured out his entire wrath that was uh, deserving for every single person in this room, every single person in the world. God poured that wrath all on his son so that we could know him, and this man didn't do anything wrong. And so Jesus died so we could be forgiven Jesus died so we could be brought back into relationship. Jesus died so we could discover our purpose. Jesus died so we could experience never-ending life. But it came in a cost. It cost something. But, but a really cool reality is that uh, we were worth it, one. But two, we know we're valuable because of what it cost God to buy us back. Right? Like the value of something is determined by how much someone's willing to pay to buy it back, whether a podium, a car, a chair, whatever, whatever someone's willing to pay to buy that thing determines its worth. And the Bible says that we were worth the price of God's perfect one and only son. That means we have value, infinite, infinite value. So we looked at the source of love, the example of love, and then lastly, I just want to look at the practice of love found in verse 11. And it's cool because John ends this little section by urging us to go out and love one another. He's like, go out and do this thing. Um, And 
uh, I think that becomes our natural motivation for, for loving God and, and loving people. But there's a reason John explains love to us before he commands us to love. Why is that? Because what we practice is often motivated by what we believe. Let me say that again. What we practice is often motivated by what we believe. So if we don't believe the right thing first, we're not going to practice the thing that we need to practice. A famous theologian by the name of A.W. Tozer, he once said this, what comes into a man's mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And, And I think it's a cool little quote because the reality is if we fail to love, I think it's because of one of two reasons. One, we either don't think about God or enough, Or two, our view of God is too small. But when we actually think about the reality of who God is, what he's like, who he's revealed himself to be, our natural response becomes to love, to know this God, to, to do as he loves, to do as he commanded, to do as he created us to be. You know, we can't love as we ought until we really grasp this idea that God loves, that he loves us. And, and notice that when John says that we ought to love one another in verse 11, it's, it's not this optional thing. Like that word ought, think of like a moral obligation, like we are on this God. Uh, Matthew 23, 37 through 39 says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And then the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. So if this is the greatest commandment, to love God and to love people, then I think the greatest tragedy is when we don't do it. Like that's, that's the greatest tragedy, when we fail to love people. And, and when John tells us to love one another, he's not just talking about believers, right? He's not just talking about people inside the four walls of, of a building like this, because our model for love is Jesus. Meaning, we're called to love saved, unsaved, just alike, right? Everyone you interact with in this world, at the gym, in your home, in this church, uh, at work, wherever you go, love them, right? Like if Jesus came into the world to die for sinners who definitely had nothing to offer him, he's calling us to do the same. To love people even if they disagree with you. To love people even though they may annoy you. To love people that that you just have different political background, whatever. Uh, And I'm not telling you how to love them, but this verse says, love them. Love them. Christ in you, so let Christ be shown through you. So we're bound to love in response to God's love for us. But like I said earlier, it can feel impossible to love those we don't like. If we're being honest, like it can feel really hard to love those who who we don't like. But here's the thing. Love isn't dependent upon who we like, although it definitely helps. I'm not going to lie. It helps to, to, you know, if you like someone, it's much easier to love them. But love isn't dependent upon whether we like people or not. Love comes from this attitude of the heart. And, And this famous philosopher and theologian, his name was Dallas Willard. He wrote a book I read called A Life Without Lack, and he said it perfectly. He says this. Our aim under love is not to be loving to this or that person or in this or that kind of situation, but to be a person possessed by love as an overall character of life. Our response to the specific occasions when we are to act flow out of our overall character. So I I do not come to my enemies and then try to love them. It's too late. I come to them as a loving person, the good tree bearing good fruit. That's incredible. 
right? But, but that's what the power of the gospel does. Like, get, believing the gospel doesn't just get us into heaven, but it transforms our desires. It transforms our motivation. It transforms our, our ability to love. Like, when Christ is dwelling in you, you have the power to do things that you once never had the power to do. Like, love comes out of a result of Jesus working in your life. In our own power, I promise you, you will always fail to love. I will always fail to love if it's just Jordan relying on Jordan. People will let us down. We struggle to forgive people. Some of you guys have, have really been wrong. That, like, in your own strength, you will not be able to love those type of people that have wronged you. We believe we're better and more deserving than others. We believe people have certain issues in their lives that we really don't like, and so we don't want to love them. Uh, because we also think love makes us foolish, and we think love makes us look weak, and love makes us look like we're being taken advantage of. Uh, we believe all of these different things, but in moments you're tempted to believe any of those things. I, I encourage you to remember this truth, but if God so loves me, but if, if God so loves me, because when we think about Jesus' life, he embraces so many of the things that, that we fear, right? Because he wasn't driven by fear. He was motivated by love. Think about it. He willingly died for people that he knew would reject him and have nothing to offer him in return. He willingly uh, went to the cross as, as a sinless man, knowing that he was going to be abandoned by those closest to him who said, Jesus would never abandon you. Like, he knew all of this stuff ahead of time. But he said, man, I'm going to love them anyways, and, and he invites us to be a part of that kind of life. He invites us to be a part of that kind of love. Because remember, God isn't asking us to do something he, he doesn't give us the power to do. Like if we're sons and daughters of God, his DNA is residing inside of us. His spirit lives inside of us. Loving people, the power to love this person. I need the power to, to overcome this difficult circumstance. I need the power to show love to my boss or coworker, whoever it is. It comes from opening yourself up to saying, God, would you do whatever you want to do in my life and help me to get out of the way and try to, trying to stop you from doing it? Like when we open ourselves to what God wants to do in our lives, I think transformation can start to happen. Uh, but practically, because I know we're practical people. I'm practical. I want to give you five quick things on what we can do to better love people. And at this time, I want to invite the worship team back up. But five quick things that we can do to love people. Uh, number one is believe the gospel. I talk about it all the time, uh, but believe the gospel. Believe that although uh, we weren't lovely, although we didn't have anything to bring to the table, God left heaven and earth to come and to be in relationship with us, that he found us beautiful, that he found us worth dying for, that he found our lives changed worth it. Like, believe the gospel. And I think a lot of you guys would uh, you know, would say that you know the gospel, and I think uh, we, we can know it mentally, but not to the point where it's actually changing our lives. So in our busy New York lives, take some time this week, in the morning, at night, whatever, but slow down and actually reflect on that truth that God is in love with me, and I didn't do anything to offer him. Just, just reflect on that. Number two, ask God to help you to see the value in people straightforward, don't overcomplicate it, don't think too hard about it, but just ask God to help you to see the value in people. Don't, don't think about, you know, the, the things they do or what they say or the, the lifestyle you disagree with. Just ask God to help you to see the value in people that you would think are unlovable. Ask God to give you his perspective. Number three, ask God to show you needs around you. 
This can be in your family, uh, at your career, uh, wherever you go. And, and you could also just ask people closest to you, like, man, how, how can I serve you? How can I love you better? Whether it's a husband and a wife, uh, a, a you know, parent to their kid, uh, you to your coworker, whatever, just literally ask people, do you have anything in your life that I could help meet right now? Do you have any needs? Do, do you have anything I can support you with? Do you have anything I can be praying for you about? And, and if uh, by surprise everyone says, no, I'm good, then just keep your eyes open to recognize needs and then meet them, right? If someone is hungry, they, they need uh, some food or something, Offer them, to offer, offer them some food. If someone doesn't have a ride, offer to be that ride. But you don't always have to wait for people to express a need. Have a sensitivity to recognize needs and be determined to be a need maker, a problem solver. Amen. Okay, for other people, the Holy Spirit for power. I believe we are not going to accomplish this great task of loving people the way Jesus did in our own strength. So, so we need to, 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 to get desperate, to get on our knees and say, God, I need you to help me accomplish what is impossible in the natural. You the power to do what you can never do by yourself. And, and the last idea I have here is look to Jesus constantly. I'm really starting to uh, practice this, to believe this. I've been trying for like the past year um, and, and tell myself this truth that if I can't find it in Jesus, I don't want it found in me, quite blank. If, if I can't find it in the person, in the, the work of Jesus Christ, I don't want it anywhere in my life. They used to make these bracelets, the, the WWJD bracelets, what would Jesus do? And uh, I thought they were you know, cool and a little cheesy but clever. Um, but I think they served a purpose. And the purpose was when you were tempted to live for yourself, when you were tempted to, to do something that doesn't love people well, when, when you're tempted to... to just, just not be a person of love, you would look at that bracelet and say, like, what would Jesus do? And it's this idea of saying, man, is this what God created me for? Did he create me to be this bashful, mean, revengeful, uh, bitter, whatever, self-centered person, or did he create me for more? And if Jesus was literally standing in my shoes right now, how would he respond to the thing I'm about to respond to? What would Jesus do? He is our savior, but he's also our example. And we can track his life through the pages of scripture, and we can see that this, this man was so countercultural. He lived a life no one was used to, not even those closest to him. And, and Jesus didn't, he doesn't invite us to follow him into what's normal. He doesn't invite us to follow him into what everyone else around us is doing. He, he doesn't invite us to, to follow him to what we feel entitled to or what we have a right to. He, he invites us to follow him to become more like him. Amen. He invites us to follow him to something counterculture, to something that this world has never seen. And that's what I want to be a part of. So listen, we, we have difficult people in our lives. I, I will give you that. And love costs us something. I will give you that. But it's worth it. And I'm telling you that. It's so worth it. And in a, a world of wrong, the church has to get love right. Because if, if we can't, no one ever will. No one ever will. And we have the source of love ourselves. So listen, this is a journey. We're on it together. We will fail. But when you f fail, fall forward. Get back up. Keep loving people, even when it hurts, even when it's inconvenient. Don't be content until every part of your life looks like Jesus. Like don't, don't be content until every area of your life is conformed to his image. 
It's going to be a lifelong journey. But, but don't be content saying, I'm just human. Or that's just the side Jesus has to be okay with. He died not to make you 99% clean, but to make you 100% holy. Amen. To look 100% like him, okay? He created you to love. So don't settle for anything less than that. And uh, what, what we're about to do is, Sal's going to lead us in a song called Reckless Love. And I want to I invite you all to stand with me real quick. You got to all stand across this room. We're going to sing this song, Reckless Love, because I, I totally believe what we practice is motivated by what we believe. So before we can go out and love people, I encourage you, take some time thinking about the radical love of this God, not for the person standing next to you, but for you, for you, for you, for you, for, for everyone in this room, think individually about the radical love God has for your life, and uh, just take some time to worship. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to worship. So Jesus, I thank you for your love. I thank you that you are holy. I thank you that you left heaven and earth to be with us. I thank you that the price tag on our lives was the cost of your son's death, Lord. Man, we, we have infinite value, something that, oh, man, there's not enough commas or zeros that could determine our value, Lord. Oh, it's incredible. So God, I just pray that you would make us more like you, that we would be open to becoming more like you, but first that we would actually experience that you love us. God, help us to grasp that you love us. And would you mold us into people who love. You're awesome, Jesus. Be with us as we worship. And we pray all of these things in your name. Amen. Amen. For I spoke a word, you soon.